of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science The Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando. I'm delighted to welcome Hal Herzog, who is a professor of psychology at the Western Carolina University in the USA and author of several books, including Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Why is it so hard to think straight about animals? And it has a puppy, a rat, and a pig on the cover, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about them. Welcome, Hal. Well, for, thanks for asking me uh, for, to be on the uh, on the podcast, Sabrina. Yeah, very much looking forward, especially now your your new the new edition, if you like, of this book is coming out uh, very soon. Um, and uh, even though we're recording this a little bit earlier, but uh, very much looking forward. It's been. A long time ago that I read the first version, let's say that. So very much looking forward to the update. And um, we always like to start podcasts with uh, kind of an early story around perhaps connecting with animals or your relationship to people and animals. So perhaps you could uh, do that. Well, yeah, sure. I've, I've always been interested in animals. When I was a kid, I, uh, I was one of these geeky kids that collected snakes. So I was in high school. I had, you know, in my, I look back on this now with some uh, trepidation, but I had, you know, a boa constrictor. I had a couple of rat snakes. I had a large carnivorous lizard, turtles and things like that. So I've always been interested in, uh, in animals. And I wound up in graduate school doing my PhD uh, and my master's and PhD in animal behavior. But at the same time, I was getting interested in, in animal people. And uh, this really uh, became, you know, came to a head when I was uh, working on my doctoral dissertation, which was on chicken behavior. And I was interested in the differences between uh, different types of uh, strains of chickens uh, and, and how they behaved in various aspects of their behavior. And some of my neighbors, I had moved to the country in Western North Carolina, and some of my neighbors, it turned out, were rooster fighters. And I thought, wow, it'd be really interesting to see if gamecock chicks were uh, different than, for example, commercial poultry chicks. So I, I started hanging out with these rooster fighters, and at some point, they invited me to go to a cockfight with them. And I initially told them no. And then I started thinking about it, thinking like, you know, I just got to do it. I'm a psychologist, and I got to try and understand, you know, how people think about animals. And so I... I uh, went to my first rooster fight with these guys, and on uh, one hand, I was horrified by it. On the other hand, I was really finding it sort of fascinating, and so I wound up switching gears, and half of my dissertation turned out to be uh, on rooster fighting and the culture of rooster fighting. And, and the main takeaway was that the uh, cockfighting culture uh, was, the people involved in the cockfighting culture were not the uh, psychosexual sadists that you might thought they were. They were just like everyday people, you know, they were... Uh, Western, you know, everyday people from Western North Carolina, they tended to be politically conservative. Most of them had uh, families. They went to church, church on Sunday. They were just like everybody else. And I'm thinking like, wait a minute, that's so weird. Like these guys are just like everybody else, but yet they have this weird hobby that involves, you know, killing chickens on a, raising and then killing chickens on a Saturday night. 
And so that sort of rattled around in my head. And uh, the bottom line is that I shifted ultimately my research from from trying to study animals to trying to studying the twisted psychology of uh, human animal interactions. Yes. And, you know, you already, of course, the title of your book, you know, why is it so hard to think straight about animals and also how we, you mentioned, right, looking back at this with some trepidation and, you know, how you perhaps interacted with animals and that, you know, constantly we're learning and also that, you know, this, this culture that you talked about, and you already mentioned uh, some of that work also in, in your, in the first version of the book. And um, perhaps you can talk a little bit more about how you shifted from animal behavior to this human animal interactions and, and perhaps a little bit more about different cultures or different perspectives. Yeah, well, the, 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 so I, I wound up studying uh, the, the sort of moral justifications of, of cockfighters as part of my doctoral dissertation. And the, uh, at the same time, I was running a series of experiments. My research really focused on uh, the individual differences in the personalities of snakes. So I had sort of two parallel, two parallel research uh, projects going, you know, one dealing with uh, uh, individual differences and in, in whether you know, snakes are mean or nice, and then the other on people that are mean or nice, nice to animals. And what I realized uh, at some point that I was I was getting more and more uh, I was getting less and less interested in my own research on animal behavior. And and you know when when, you, when you're starting to get bored with your own research, it's time to do something else. On the other hand, I was getting more and more interested in the psychology of human animal interactions. And so I began a study of uh, animal rights activists. I started going to animal rights demonstrations and uh, interviewing animal rights activists. And at some point I thought, you know, there, there's a lot of people studying animal behavior, and there's a lot of really good researchers doing that. The city of human-animal interactions was just getting started. And I thought, you know, that might be a field that I could really make a difference in. And so I wound up just basically closing up my snake lab and uh, going full-time on uh, working on trying to study uh, the psychology of our interactions with other species. And um, that, that was about 30 years ago. So, I, so I've been, and, I, and I'm still fascinated by this. I'm still absolutely fascinated by uh, human-animal interactions. I've never gotten bored with research in this area. I read no, papers okay. every day. <laughs> yes, I can, I can hear it in your voice. It's absolutely raising me. And I think such an important point you're making there, if you get bored, or, you know, you feel drawn to something else a lot more than, you know, yeah, maybe it's time for a shift. So also, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are interested to get into the field. And um, actually, I would like to backtrack a little bit. Uh, not all of us have necessarily a background in, in ethics or, you know, uh, the language around it. So perhaps could you say something a little bit more about what do we mean when we talk about moral justification? Yeah, um, and this this is actually uh, the subtext of how I got involved in in this in this in this area of research. As uh, I was when I was back when I was a graduate student, I guess I was finishing up my PhD. Um, I attended the uh, I was invited to attend the International Ethology Congress, which was at that time was in Vancouver, Canada, and. 
uh, on the plane in the airport. In the airport, uh, when I got when I when I uh, was getting on the plane, there was a copy of Peter Singer's uh, Animal Liberation, which had uh, just been published uh, a couple of years before. And and I and I uh, you know there was some buzz about the book, and I and I just you know bought a copy of it. And uh, on the way back, on the way back from the meeting, I I read read the book in the plane, and my initial response was like a lot of uh, research scientists, I sort of dismissed uh, the idea yeah, that, that animals should have rights, that we need to take that, that seriously. I mean, after all, as an animal researcher, um, I was you know, concerned to some degree about animal ethics, but you know, Singer was arguing uh, a whole different line of work. And I thought, well, this guy's just another one of these soft-hearted soft you know, le you know, left lefties, philosophical lefties, and uh, then I started reading the book. And I realized, wait a minute, I got to take this guy really seriously. You know, I, his arguments are really good, and uh, that sort of rattled around in my head. But the other thing that rattled in my around in my head was I thought that he was uh, incorrect in thinking that a, a logical argument was going to affect people's behavior when it comes to the treatment of animals, and that Singer did not understand psychology. And what he really needed to do was he really needed to understand psychology and that psychologists hadn't taken this seriously. And I started thinking about, well, what are the factors that affect why we love some animals and not others? You know, why, do we, why do we love you know, dogs and puppies when we don't love and we eat and we eat pigs? And uh, that was developed, Gordon Burkhart, my, uh, my uh, mentor, uh, who's been on? Who's been on your podcast? Uh, he and I uh, developed a uh, line of thinking on this, where we look at the psychological factors uh, associated with how we think about animals. You know, whether their eyes are big, or whether we think they're smart, or whether they look like us, or whether they have disgusting habits. And we published one of the first papers on this back in the back in the early nineteen eight back in the nineteen eighties. And um, so it turns out I was wrong about Singer's book, by the way, that if you actually look at the, the book Animal Liberation, and I've told him this, you know, I, I sort of apologize. <laughs> I, uh, if you actually look at Animal Liberation, you see there's about 80 or 90 pages worth of philosophy. And the rest of it is basically psychology. It's designed to pull at your heartstrings. It's about the mistreatment of animals in research, the mistreatment of animals in factory farms. Uh, there's photos in there. And so what Singer did the, the, the great power of his book, the reason why it started a movement, the reason why it's been one of the most important books and certainly the most important books in animal ethics and the reason why he's such a great philosopher uh, is that he really combines philosophy and psychology. So my first thinking was completely wrong. Uh, Singer was right. Uh, and uh, so, so I think to really affect change in people, we need to apply, we need to appeal to both their head and their heart. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yes, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, when we, at least that's what I uh, have when I start to delve into different areas, um, you know, you get carried away or I'm thinking about, oh, this or that, or this isn't right. And, and I have to reread it again and, and rework with it again uh, to understand the full extent of what uh, people were writing. So that certainly uh, has happened to me as well, where I've had to apologize and go, oh, um, yeah, so it totally <laughs> resonates. Uh, and before we move on to, you know, hearing more about uh, you as a university professor and your students, 
you know, I'm sure people are going to wonder about, and you've got, you, you mentioned closing your snake lab, but you mentioned, you know, looking at individual differences and whether, you know, some snakes are mean and others are nice. And so obviously we're going to hear a lot more about humans, but can you talk, tell us a little bit about what the outcomes were if you have um, finished that study? Because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it was actually a lot of, a lot of fun in some ways doing that research. So I, I did develop this personality test for, for baby snakes. I did it when I was working at uh, Gordon Burkhardt's lab at the University of Tennessee when I was, when I was on sabbatical. And uh, we had Gordon, uh, as, as I suspect he talked about when he, when he did your podcast, you know, his area is reptile behavior and the development of reptile behavior. And uh, that summer, the summer that I was working there, we had uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of baby snakes being born of different species in the lab. And I, and I, saw pretty quickly that their behavior was different in terms of whether or not they tended to, if I was going to, let's say, toss a piece of worm into there to feed them, whether or not they would try and strike at me as opposed to ignoring me and just going after the worm. So then, well, that's pretty interesting. So I developed a little personality test and it involved me uh, basically putting these baby snakes into an open field, sort of a, uh, uh, sort of a large, uh, actually an arena. And uh, I would basically wiggle my hands uh, in a series of trials in front of these snakes and count the number of times that they would strike in and, or, and bite my finger. And so some of these snakes could bite my finger, uh, strike at my finger as many as 60 times in a two-minute trial. So I am pretty sure that uh, my colleague, Bonnie, Bonnie Bailey, who was working with me on this, who was a graduate student at the time, I think the two of us have been bitten by snakes more than anyone in human history. We've both been bitten thousands of times by snakes. And what we found out, interestingly enough, was that uh, there's big there's species differences in whether snakes are uh, you know, inclined to, to attack or not. Uh, there's huge individual differences. Uh, snakes from the same litter tend to be, brothers and sisters tend to be more alike than from other litters. And we eventually uh, worked on the heritability and we found that uh, that individual differences in these snakes was about 40 to 50% due to genes, which is the same as most human personality traits. Um, we uh, found out, for example, that uh, if you fed a snake uh, a great huge meal, 50% of its body weight, the equivalent of me eating a, uh, an 80-pound you know, hunk of meat, is that they would get really nastier, in part because they couldn't run away <laughs> very much. So we, we published a series of, gosh, I don't know, a dozen papers on various aspects of uh, the factors that has affected the development of, uh, you know, of snakes. And we found out that their, uh, their tendency to be, be nasty or nice uh, was consistent. You know, snakes that were born uh, nasty tended to stay nasty and tended, snakes that were born nice tended to stay, stay nice. So it was a, uh, you know, a nice set of studies. Excellent. We'll make sure to put a link to, uh, to your research gate or some other so that people interested, they can uh, go and, uh, and look that up. And yes, absolutely. Uh, Professor Gordon Bernhardt, he came onto our podcast as well, as well as other things that we have done together. And we'll put a link to episode 38 uh, for people who want to know more about his work with uh, reptiles. So that's wonderful. And um, perhaps you can share a little bit about, uh, you know, obviously you are working um, as a university professor and students and other activities that you're involved in. 
perhaps you could share a little bit before we kind of dive into more of your books and, and other writings. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, as a, uh, I, I am a merit professor emeritus now. I, re I retired a couple of years ago. Uh, but for many years, I taught psychology at Western Carolina University. Uh, and I worked with undergraduates and I, I worked with graduate students a lot. Uh, I, I, interestingly enough, I did not teach a course in human-animal interactions, which was my research area. My main course as a college professor was uh, teaching biological psychology. And I also taught the human sexuality class. Uh, so I was sort of known on campus, not as the guy that studies human-animal interactions. I was known as the guy that teaches the sex class on campus. <laughs> my, my, I, uh, my, my students and I, uh, however, did a lot of, uh, we did a lot of studies looking at human-animal interactions, and they, were, they tended to be a lot of fun. For example, uh, some of my students were doing, uh, have studied uh, things like, for example, people that keep pet rats. Uh, which turned out to be a fascinating study. People that, rats, it turns out, makes really great pets. The only problem with them is they only live for an average about two years. So you're, you're constantly dealing, having to deal with the death of a pet. Um, we, I had students that studied women hunters, which turned out to be a great project. Um, um, one, of my, one of the most fun projects was a, a, a uh, Shelly Galvin, one of my first graduate students, uh, and I did a study on uh, the, the treatment of animals in the tabloid press, you know, these supermarket tabloids with all these things about space aliens and things like that. And the original name of our paper, we wrote a research paper and published it on the original name of our paper was taken after a headline, was on, based on a headline from one of the tabloid stories, which was a woman gives birth to litter of nine rabbits. And I thought it was a great title for a scientific paper. Unfortunately, the editor did not agree and he accepted my paper, but he made us change the title. Uh, so I thought that woman gives litter, uh, birth to litter of nine rabbits would be a, a uniquely interesting uh, title for a research paper. Yes, I think so. And for sure also, so I actually haven't read this one. I clearly have to go back to your publication list, but uh, luckily you do write also on other platforms. So I guess you can always use the title there and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should go back, yeah, yeah. Go, right, back, go back and write it. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing is, yeah, I think you're making a good point. In, in recent years, what I've, uh, you know, I, I shifted my research uh, from animal behavior to human-animal interactions. And in recent years, uh, I've sort of had the impression, it's not an impression is true, is that there's, there's a huge number of, of researchers going into this field. And what, what I've done is I've shifted my uh, focus really on trying to communicate with the public. And so to do that, that's one reason why I wrote uh, my book. And it's also a reason why I write this uh, blog for Psychology Today magazine, Animals and Us. And uh, first of all, it's a lot of fun to write the blog. Uh, but secondly, it gives me a chance to uh, feature you know, you know, researchers who, uh, who I think, you know, young researchers that are doing, you know, really good, really good studies. Excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely put also a link to the Psychology Today magazine uh, for people to check out. And so before we move on, could you say something about, you know, when you say biological psychology, what are some of the things for people who have perhaps not come across to this uh, subject matter in this way? What what sorts of uh, topics or content do you teach there? Well, biological psychology is is just what it says. It's the it's the the impact of biology on uh, human beha human behavior. So my class, uh, we talked a lot about uh, evolution, the you know evolutionary psychology and the impact of evolution on human behavior. Uh, we talk a lot about you know the brain and how the brain works. 
and uh, how things like you know drugs work and how they how they have their effects on behavior. There's a, a there's a fairly substantial emphasis on my class on the impact of genes and on behavior. You know which behaviors are uh, affected by genes, which is actually most human behavior to, to some degree. Uh, also, uh, I would talk about it's and, and it, one of the I would tell students the first day of class is the subtext of this class is what's the difference between you and your cat? Are you basically the same as your cat, or are you basically a different kind of creature as your cat? And I have to admit that I personally was always, and by the way, that was one of the questions on my final exam. What's the difference in your, between you and your cat? And uh, I have to admit that, I'm, that I'm, I'm still conflicted by that. There are some years that I thought, I think that me and my cat are, uh, are pretty much the same. And then there's times when I think there's a world of difference between us. And so to me, it was uh, this, it gets to not only the question of human-animal interactions, but the more deeper philosophical issue of what it means to be human. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, for those of us who have maybe studied a different line, this might be another area that you might want to dive into to uh, complement and continue personal development, if you like. So... On another note, you have a lot of different research, uh, collaborative research also. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, the biology culture and the origins of pet keeping. So the issues, you know, why do humans and only humans keep pets uh, in general, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the, you know, obviously one of the most uh, you know, interesting aspects of human animal interactions is the fact that some humans fall deeply in love with uh, love with members of other, of other species and we, we keep them as pets and the question is why you know why do why do humans keep pets and uh i think there's a lot of controversy and misunderstanding about this there's a lot of and, and, and here by the way some of my colleagues would, would would disagree with me on some of these things some people argue that humans have a trait called biophilia in which we have a which they interpret incorrectly by the way as the idea that humans have a love for all things, uh, you know, bright and beautiful, you know, that all all living creatures, and that's simply not true. Uh, that that idea was put forth originally by E.O. Wilson in his uh, in his, his book called Biophilia, which he wrote back in the 1980s. Um, what Wilson argued wasn't that humans love animals or loves nature, is that we, but that we have a a natural attraction to that that we are uh, you know attracted. Uh, Positively and sometimes negatively, uh, you know, towards uh, towards other species and towards the natural world. And the first version of the book, uh, Wilson said that he thought bio biophilia was an instinct, an inborn instinct. However, he subsequently changed his mind about that, and he basically said that biophilia is a set of cultural learning rules. And people tend to forget that. And when I look at uh, human pet keeping, what I see. It's not that humans worldwide keep pets and have them the same way. It's just the opposite, is that we see enormous cultural differences. Uh, some cultures have no concept of pet. They don't even have a word corresponding to pet. Uh, the way that human that we think of pets in uh, the Western world, in the United States, uh, in you know, see the UK or you know, in Europe right now, is really a cultural anomaly. Peter Gray at University of uh, Las Nevada, Las Vegas, did a really excellent study of 60 human cultures, 
and found out that uh, in most of these cultures, uh, people had uh, they lived with some sorts of sort of animal that were important to them. Uh, typically, it was dogs and to a lesser extent cats, but in some cultures it was you know, you know turtles, deer, you know fish, all you know all kinds of things. In, in Japan, insects. Um, but the thing is that in in very few of these cultures were pets adored and played with the way that we that we uh, play with them. For example, I think it was only five cultures in which dogs were regularly played with. Uh, in most of these cultures, dogs were were basically useful creatures to have around. They they served as guard dogs. They served as herding. They were involved in hunting and things like that. Um, so there's enormous cultural differences. We also see enormous historical differences in pet and pet keeping. Uh, so I I'm more impressed with the impact of culture on uh, uh, our patterns of pet keeping rather than biology. And the other thing is that. Uh, I'm, you know, there's an interesting question about the, getting back to this question of what's the difference between you and your cat. Um, I make the argument that humans are the only species to keep pets. And whenever I say that, you know, I can see you know, if I say it in a room, I can see people saying, oh, no, he's so wrong. What about Coco's kitten? You know, the gorilla that had a pet, a pet kitten, the sign language friend gorilla. You know, what about all these, uh, you know, YouTube videos about, you know, Dogs and dogs and cats, or dogs and deer, or uh, you know, the case of you know an elephant and a dog that that became fast friends. You know, what about uh, the baby hippopotamus that fell in love with the giant turtle uh, in in in, uh, in Kenya? Um, there's tons of examples of animals forming tight relationships with other species. However, these do not occur in nature. There's only three examples I know of of anything even resembling pet keeping that that occur that occur in nature. And the uh, the first was a, a case in Brazil where a group of uh, capuchin monkeys adopted a baby marmoset and kept it and treated it like a baby marm like like a baby capuchin for 14 months. And that's the that's the best example that we have. Uh, there's a couple other examples. There's an example that was reported a couple of years ago of a, uh, a, a I think it's called, a, a, it was a dolphin that involved uh, a, a whale, a small whale, and it was uh, the dolphin was lactating, and she would and she would uh, breastfeed the uh, breastfeed the whale, and that relationship kept going for uh, several months, as I recall. And then more recently, there was a case of a a lion in India, Gur forest lion in India, that adopted a baby leopard. But in terms of in terms of, for example, our closest relative, uh, the chimpanzee, the, the hundreds of thousands, millions of hours that uh, field biologists have watched chimpanzees in the wild. Uh, the closest thing to pet keeping is that a, a chimpanzee would, uh, for example, uh, catch a small, uh, let's say, a bush baby, which is a, a you know, small little mammal, and uh, and sort of you know play with it for a little while. But they invariably kill it within usually within 15 minutes. And the only thing pet-like about it is they don't eat it. So you might toss it around like a football, uh, but, but, they, but, they, but they certainly don't keep it as pets. So I argue that humans are the only able to keep pets. And, and I think the reason for that is, is that pet keeping requires culture. And that we know that animals have culture, other species have culture, but not anywhere to the degree that humans have culture. So that's my argument that, you know, you know, people say, well, humans are the only animals that use tools. You know, they're not, you know, humans are the only animals that have language, you know, they're not, at least to some degree. 
But I argue one of the things that separates humans from other species is pet keeping. Great, thank you so much. That's yeah. I think uh, I think you're right, and um, it's yeah. Who knows? Maybe in the future we get different in, uh, inputs and uh, discoveries. But for now, uh, I will have to agree with that. And um, there's you know much to say, of course, about uh, pets and why we have them because we enjoy being with them, and uh, you know it may give us a sense of care and uh, for others and so many other reasons and. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about your work around understanding the impact of pets on human health and psychological well-being, uh, fact, fiction, or hypothesis. Like, are pets really good for human health and happiness? Yeah, um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I think it's a fascinating, fascinating area, and I want to give it a little historical perspective. Uh, the idea that pets are good for people, at least uh, empirical studies on it, really began uh, with the paper published around 19, uh, 1980 by Erica Friedman, who was uh, doing her doctoral dissertation on the impact of uh, social connections on survival from heart attacks. And uh, Erica found that, and her study, oh, oh so she, she had, she was primarily interested in human connections, you know, your, your, your relationships with family and friends. But she tossed in a question on, do you have a pet? And what she found was that uh, the, as I recall correctly, that the survival rate a year later amongst the uh, people that had pets was about four times higher than people that did not have pets. Well, this sort of ushered in a, a huge, a huge amount of interest, uh, and people really began taking this idea seriously. Um, I know people that uh, do research in this area, and I would, you know, I would go to meetings and I would, you know, hear them, hear the talks, and I was absolutely convinced of the impact, the positive impact of pets on health and happiness, until I began writing my book. So this wasn't really my research area, but I, but I, I knew that if I'm going to write about human-animal interactions, I've got to have a, a chapter on pets. So. Uh, so I started taking a deep dive into the literature on, uh, on the impact of uh, pets and human health. And I was really surprised. What I, what I wound up with was, uh, you know, I, my, filing, my filing cabinet when, I am, when I'm writing is my office floor. And I, would had, I had a stack of reprints on my office floor, that, which had found, sure enough, as Erica had, that, uh, you know, People were more likely to survive heart attacks, and that, and that, you know, people were less depressed and less lonely if they had pets and all that stuff. But then I had a, another stack, almost as big, that where studies had found no difference, which surprised me, because uh, I was I was unaware of these studies. And then I had another stack where the pet owners were worse off, that they were more likely to drink more, that they were more likely to be smokers, that they were more likely to be obese. And, and I, I, was I was stunned by this because everything I had, you know, seen or you know, read in the newspapers or anything like that was that pets were good for people. Um, what we now know is that, let uh, me also say, is that the pet products industry really pushes this idea that if you get a pet, you're going to be happier and you're going to be healthier. Uh, the pet products industry argues that pet ownership uh, saves Americans about $12 billion a year on uh, healthcare expenses. Uh, so the pet products industry has, has really, really taken this idea on. Uh, my view, when I look at the literature, is that it does not support the idea that 
there's definitely an impact of, of, of pets on health. Let me give a couple examples. Let's of all, take a look at the claim that people, that people with pets are less depressed. Well, uh, about a year ago, I uh, took a deep dive into that literature and I found 30 papers which looked at the impact of pets on depression that had, uh, it was a study of pet owners and comparing pet owners and depression scales, uh, pet owners and non-owners in terms of depression scales. And I was surprised that of these 30 papers, only five of them found that pet owners were less depressed. About five of them found that they were more depressed and the rest found no difference. And I found the same thing with, with, with loneliness. Uh, this, most studies have not found that uh, pet owners are less lonely than non-owners. We see the same thing for studies of the impact of pets on longevity. There have been one or two studies that have found that pet owners live longer, but most studies have not found this. Uh, and the other problem we have with uh, the studies of the impact of pets on, on health is that uh, we don't know which way the causal arrow points. So for example, let's say, uh, we'll take a, real, take a study uh, of the impact of pets on kids. That was uh, done in, uh, in California. And they found that kids that had pets uh, were better off in a, num in a number of ways. They tended to do better in school. Uh, they tended to have fewer health problems, you know, and things like that. However, what the researchers did was that they all had also had a bunch of health and socioeconomic measures. And what they found was that uh, uh, kids with pets tended to be from families that had more money. They tended to be from families that had uh, you know, homes with lawns. Uh, they tended to be native English speakers. They tended to have parents that had, had better education. Um, and once they took out these socioeconomic variables, uh, what they found was that the pet effect, there, there was no pet effect. That yeah, kids with pets are better off, but that's just like kids whose parents have a Mercedes Benz are better off than parents that don't have enough money to buy a car. And so it may be that it's not that getting a pet makes you healthier and happier. It's people that are healthier and happier are more likely to have pets. And it's been very difficult to tease, to tease those factors out. And so what I argue is that uh, we know in our hearts, I mean, I'm a pet lover. I have pets, you know, always had pets. Um, I feel like my pets my, my pets, you know, my cat now, Tilly, my wife, my wife's away for a you know, week on a meet for me or something like that. I feel like I'm a happier person. I'm a healthier person uh, when they have Tilly around to talk to. But right now, the data is so mixed on that. We cannot make any firm conclusion about it. So I'm sort of, uh, I, I think the pet industry tends to hype this idea way more uh, than it deserves to be in terms of uh, their interest is in people getting pets because it, you know, you sell more dog food and stuff like that. Yes. Yes. And so important to, you know, as you talk about all these complexities and yeah, which way, you know, the arrow points and what are all these different complexities and if we take them out and which of course also can really help, especially if, you know, people are being, you know, motivated to buy a pet and, and, you know, as well as I do uh, probably better than I do, you know, the complexities of having pets. I'm actually allergic to all animals, unfortunately, which is not very handy in this line of work, but uh, it really means that, you know, I haven't really had any pets uh, for a long time, but of course, having a pet comes with so many different responsibilities and financial impacts and so on. So it is really important to get a good insight on that. So thank you for sharing that background. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me also mention, uh, you know, you know, 
you know, living with a pet is not all sweetness and light. And so, for example, in the United States, uh, uh, pets are the second biggest source of conflict between neighbors. And uh, in the United States, about 85,000 uh, people are taken to hospital emergency rooms each year because they break, they break a leg or uh, injure themselves by, tr by tripping over pets. And, uh, you know, and, and in the United States, 30 or 40 people are killed each year by dogs. So, so uh, you know, live, and, then there, and then there's the, uh, the emotional cause, which can be really difficult of having a beloved pet die. So it's, 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 really, it's really a mixed bag. And then, and then, of course, there's the, uh, which we could maybe talk about more later, there's the question of whether or not uh, being a pet is the best thing that happened to, for example, dogs and cats. Yes, absolutely. We can definitely talk a lot more about that because, yeah, as you say, does it help people? You know, are people holistically feeling better, um, experiencing better lives with, with pets? And what does that mean for the animal? Um, whether it's a bearded dragon or a cat or a dog, absolutely. Could you talk a little bit to perhaps to gender differences in human-animal interactions? Yeah, um, one of the things that's because I'm a biological psychologist in a way, and you know, the idea of male and female differences is uh, is, is 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 I think is I think important. One, this is also an area that I that I I found that there hadn't been any uh, systematic re there'd been. Papers. There've been a, a lot of papers that had uh, uh, been published, sort of reporting gender differences, but nobody had really sort of put this together. And so, some years ago, I decided to review the literature on this. And what I found was that uh, when it comes to, for example, uh, interacting with pets or loving animals, that uh, there were not very many gender gender differences that uh, you know when it came to um, so for example pet ownership uh, there's a, a small gender differences with women are are somewhat more likely but but not much uh, to you know to, to have a pet uh, when it comes to attachment of pets uh, surprisingly there's very little evidence that that boys and girls are uh, the girls are more attached to their pets than boys are there's there's not very many gender differences. And so what we see is that in a lot of areas that uh, as researchers that study gender emphasize is that the, the, uh, the sexes are more similar than they are apart, that there's more variation uh, within the sexes than there is between the sexes. However, what happens, what I found was when you get to the extremes uh, in terms of interacting with animals, the people that are really concerned about animal welfare, or people that are really mean to animals is that you see large gender differences emerging. And so, for example, when I started studying animal rights activists, one of the things I would do is go to animal rights demonstrations and give out surveys, and we did internet surveys and uh, things like that. Uh, and we found over and over and over again, as has everybody else, that 80 to 90% of animal activists are women. Uh, women uh, are the major co contributors to uh, money for things like the uh, Humane Society and people for the ethical treatment of animals. Uh, and it's been like this since the really beginnings of the uh, you know, concern for animal rights, which really started back in the late 1800s. What you found was that you know, most of the organizations devoted to animal welfare in the, in the late 1800s were, were, dominated, were dominated by women. And that's, seen, that's true today as well. 
On the other hand, when we look at, for example, uh, people that kill animals recreationally for, you know, hunters, sport hunters, 90% of hunting licenses in the United States are, are purchased by men. And when you look at people that are uh, abjectly cruel to animals, people that are arrested for animal cruelty, you find that 95% uh, of, of them are men, with one exception, and that is hoarders. Uh, people that love animals so much that they lose perspective and they wind up, you know, with a house full of 30 cats, uh, you know, which are, you know, mistreated and, and you know, in, in, in terrible shape. Uh, 70 to 80% of hoarders uh, are, are women. So uh, what we see is I, I have sort of a bell curve argument on that, where uh, in the middle of the distribution, which is things like uh, attitudes towards the treatment of animals, attitudes towards animal research, uh, I developed a, uh, an attitude scale to look at how people feel about animal uh, the treatment of animals, the animal attitude scale. And uh, what we find is that we always find gender differences, but they tend to be they tend to be on the small side. But when you get to these extremes, these, uh, these gender differences emerge and uh, you get more and more women uh, actively involved in, in helping animals and you get more and more men involved in actively killing animals. Thank you for that. I was wondering whether, you know, considering the differences that, you, that were found uh, also in other studies and, and your own work, could you elaborate from a biological psychology perspective between men and women, um, uh, boys and girls? Could you could you do that? Yeah, I I think that's a, a really great question, and uh, the I think the answer is going to be. Uh, well, let, me, let me put it differently. The subtext of that is the nature nurture question, which is how much of our behavior is biological and how much is cultural, or to put it more crudely, our gender difference is the result of culture or biology. And my view is that it's the result of both. And culture obviously plays an enormous difference. So take, for example, uh, what's happened in veterinary medicine. And uh, 30 years ago in the United States, uh, nearly all veterinarians were males. Veterinary medicine was considered a male profession. That began to change about 30 years ago, and women began entering veterinary, uh, veterinary medicine. And uh, now about 60% of, uh, vet, of uh, veterinarians are women, and I think about 70 or 80% of veterinary school students are women. And so the question is, why, why is this enormous, why was this enormous change from an exclusively male profession to a predominantly female uh, profession? Well, part of that's clearly due to culture. The fact that, you know, 40 years ago, people expected their veterinary, their, their veterinarians to be men, that it was just considered a male profession. Well, as things began to uh, uh, free up in terms of women being able to choose what careers they wanted, uh, we had this big influx of, big influx of women. Um, so, you know, it's possible that women are you know, somewhat more more nurturant than men. I don't think there's an enormous difference, but it's possible that that there's there's a that women are, are more nurturant than men for for a variety of reasons, including possibly some biological biological reasons, evolutionary psychology reasons. Um, but what happened is that that couldn't be expressed, you know, 40 or 50 years ago because there was no path for women to enter veterinary medicine. 
And when that path opened up, all of a sudden, women, more and more women are, are able to enter the profession, and we see this big change in, 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 in gender differences. So I, I think it's a mixture of biology and culture. For example, if you look at men hunters, so it turns out that in, in virtually every human culture, males are more likely to be hunters than females. And my guess is there's some biological under, underpinnings in that. So I, I think as with most uh, aspects of human behavior, uh, when we look at uh, gender differences, human-animal interaction, that they're the product of both biology and culture, and you can't really separate those out. Yes, and, and like veterinary profession, we have seen this in so many other professions, uh, also in animal care, other animal care professions, uh, zookeepers or shelter workers, absolutely. And, um, and it will yeah, be let, very- let me let me let me, let me mention where, where else you see it is in the study of human animal interactions. And so, for example, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, recent, I recently uh, looked at uh, the board of, of directors of the International Society for Anthrozoology. And almost, I think there's two men on the board and about 18 women on the board. And including, and all the officers now, all the officers now are women. And if you look at papers published in the journal Anthrozoos, which is one of the uh, premier journals in the field, the majority of papers uh, have women authors. So what we, and, and when I go to the con when I go to conferences, when I go to to a human animal interaction conferences of researchers, eighty or ninety percent of the uh, people giving talks at these conferences are women. So we've seen the same uh, tendency. Uh, for women to be really interested in in the study of human animal interactions, and it's it's been, it's been great because um, you know the the new researchers coming into the field are are really excellent. I mean, they're really good. They have great skills. They have good research methods uh, training, and it's, uh, it's it's been wonderful. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so, and of course, it will be very interesting to see how this whole field also of of gender differences is going to evolve. Uh, with, you know, the different genders that we uh, today recognize. So that certainly is something that, that will be very important to uh, keep an eye on. And um, I guess one of the questions, you know, when it comes also to acting for animals or being active for animals, whether that might be in the care for animals, being a veterinarian or studying animals um, or being an activist in, in, in a variety of different ways, uh, perhaps you can uh, talk a little bit to the psychology of becoming an animal activist. And, and perhaps you can define what you meant or mean by animal activist, because like I consider myself an activist, like to be active for, you know, animals, for people, for the planet. Uh, while I think, you know, activist has also gotten a different sort of connotation in different, you know, domains. So, uh, but uh, perhaps you could share with us about moral emotions and animal activism. Yeah, uh, one of the, as I, I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the studies I did after uh, I did that research on cockfighting was on people that, you know, you know I studied people whose recreation was, was killing animals. And then I, I switched over and, and began to study animal activists. And what I meant by animal activists was people that, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I didn't have a specific definition, but uh, it was people who make major changes in their life uh, because of their concern for animals. So there are people that do stuff. 
So they go to they go to protest marches. They write letters to the editor. Um, they uh, stop eating meat. They, in some cases, they stop wearing leather. Uh, they they change their they change their lives. They have uh, a moral clarity that uh, is a big plus, but also has some 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 negative components to it. So I do, I don't have a clean uh, you know, definition of what an animal active activist is, but what I was dealing with was people that were had made 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 major changes in their life. And my research primary research methods for that for that for that study was was interviews. So it was a qualitative study. It was more anthropology than than, for example, than it was social psychology. We were I wasn't giving out surveys. I was going into people's homes and talking to them about how how they became animal activists. How their lives had changed, and what were the the, the pros, the pros and cons. And uh, what I found out was that uh, uh, the animal the animal activists that I talked to uh, were quite varied. They were varied in how they became animal activists. Uh, in one case, it was a guy who uh, uh, got on an airplane. Uh, his mom uh, was an animal activist, and she gave him a, a a copy of a magazine called The Animal's Agenda. It's not published anymore. And uh, he read it on the airplane. And uh, this, the, the, uh, the, the, the flight crew, this is one that you actually got meals on airplanes that they brought him, they brought him, you know, turkey for his, for his meal, you know, turkey, turkey dinner for his meal. And uh, he had been reading and he couldn't eat it just by reading that magazine. And his life changed. You know, he, he gave, you know, he, he gave up eating meat instantly. Um, he, uh, he uh, talked his girlfriend into becoming a vegetarian. He became a vegetarian. Uh, he quit wearing leather. The interesting thing is, and this is this is the paradox of animal activism. He had a bird that he real was. He had a pet cockatiel, and uh, he began feeling really guilty about having this this pet cockatiel that lived in a cage in his house. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought it was unethical to have. Uh, for him to keep this bird caged, so he took it outside one day and he released it. And so he <laughs> he lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, not not a natural environment for a cockatiel. And he no. said, yeah, you know, he told me, he told me, he said, you know, I watched it fly up, I watched it fly up into the tree for the first time. He said it was a wonderful feeling. And he looked at me and said, like, you know, I know she probably died, but I felt like I was doing it more for myself than I was for her. And uh, it was those kinds of paradoxes that uh, really uh, uh, sort of made me realize that I was really getting into something deep because I found similar things with a lot of the animal activists. I talked to people whose marriage had broken up because uh, one, of the, one of the partners had become, had become uh, really involved in animal activism and the other one couldn't handle it. Um, you know, I talked to people who felt guilty about uh, putting uh, uh, you know, flea collars on her dog and because he killed, because he, because he killed the fleas. Uh, on the other hand, I talked with people who uh, just lit up when they would tell me about uh, their, their change in their diet and how they felt better than they had ever felt before. 
um, how they they felt like they were for the first time leading a moral life. And so I, I came away with that uh, study just thinking in some ways that the animal activists were sort of moral heroes instead of, you know, a lot of people talk about being involved in, uh, you know, caring for animals and stuff like that, but they don't really do anything about it. And these are people that actually were walking the walk, not just talking the talk. And, uh, you know, they're definitely running to a different drummer. So I, I, I have enormous respect for animal activists. And they, we also did some studies where we looked at the psychology of activists, you know, why, uh, I remember, I remember, uh, I, I, I uh, organized a seminar, not a seminar, a, a session at a conference uh, symposium uh, on animal activism. And uh, Ken Shapiro, who was at the time head of the, uh, the founder and head of the group called the Psychologist for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, uh, was, on the, was on the symposium. He's a very strong animal activist. And he and I were in, sitting at the hotel bar having a beer after the symposium and you know, talking about it. And, and, uh, and he looked at me. And he said, how, why aren't you like us? You know, like you eat meat, you know, like you're, you know, you have, you know, you have pets, but you know, you're, you know, you, you have not made these changes in your life. And he said, you know, like you've read, you know, you've read Singer, you've read Reagan, you know, you know, you know, our stuff better than we do in some ways. Why aren't you like us? Uh, because deep down inside, a lot of animal activists think that, well, if everybody really knew the truth, if they only knew the truth, about the mistreatment of animals that they would become animal activists. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really have a, I didn't really have an answer for that. It's like, you know, why, you know, why am, why am I not an animal activist? Why do I, why do I study animal activists, but I'm, but I haven't become one. And I, and I think that, that it has to do with uh, how you see the world in terms of moral clarity. And we actually did a study on this and we gave animal activists and non-activists uh, a study, uh, a survey designed to, to look at uh, philosophical orientations. And what we, we found was that animal activists tend to be uh, absolutist when it comes to their moral orientations. They tend to see moral issues in terms of black and white. And they also tend to believe that if you do the right thing, there's going to be a good outcome. They feel that way more than most people do, including me. I, I see the world's in shades of gray. I tend to, when it comes to animal issues, I, I see a lot of moral complexity. Uh, my animal activist friends tend to not see it, the world in moral complexity to the, to the degree that I do. They have this sense of right or wrong. And I, and I tend to say, you know, well, there's, there's, there's two sides to this issue. <laughs> let's look at, let's look, let's, let's look at both sides. <laughs> Absolutely. There's probably a, a, a lot of different sides uh, to this, uh, but yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, I, I certainly, you know, I have different uh, opinions on that. So I like, I don't eat you know, meat or fish or, you know, I'm a vegan and, you know, don't wear leather. But I think the, the importance is, as you um, have discussed, is the importance of, you know, talking, dialogue, uh, understanding, right? And that uh, is so much more important than, um, you know, coming on high horses or, you know, of course, it's, it can be an inquiry as in, you know, why are you not 
doing this or why are you deciding to you know live your life in a certain way uh, from an understanding perspective and I think that to me is always really important uh, and a respectful manner of having a dialogue because of course yeah we all have uh, differences in and uh, and but the most important part is to keep uh, talking about them so, you know I, yeah, I, so I thank you for sharing for that yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. I guess one of my surprises in, in the reception that my book got was that uh, it was generally very well received by animal activists, uh, which I was really surprised by because I didn't think it would. I didn't think it would be. I thought I thought uh, they would dislike the book, but and because I do raise you know issues that are that are difficult, and that's one of my goals. And uh, one of one of my goals as a as a teacher, as a college teacher, was to was not to fill my students' head full of information, but to have them leave, leave class with, uh, with a lot of questions in their head, so much so that they actually talked about it with, you know, with, their, with their colleagues, you know, with their friends after class. Because they're going to forget all the stuff you put in their head. You know, that's just temporary. It's going to be gone. But if you can get them to think differently. And in writing that book, it was my same goal. My goal is to say, you know, you know ideally, it didn't succeed all the time. But, you know, on every page... If I could get people to say, hey, you know, I never really thought of it like that. And I think that uh, a lot of animal uh, activists have uh, that have read the book have have appreciated that. And uh, so I've been really surprised that uh, that I've and the other thing is I have enormous respect for animal activists. You know, I, I there's a piece of me that says, you know, I wish I, I wish I was like that, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I would beg to differ in that sense that um, to me, you are an animal activist. And I think the, 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 I guess the umbrella under what falls on there or the sliding scale or whatever, actually it's not a scale because then you like a value judgment almost, right? But it's like we all act for animals in different ways. And right. uh, and you do so through your through your writing. And I thought your your book, and I really look forward to the next version. Did a great uh, job at actually making you know you think about things and seeing the breadth of it and keeping the, all those perspectives open. And and we just um, everyone has to decide for themselves in what way can they act for animals or for people or for the planet. And, um, you know, and some people decide to do different things rather than saying, oh, they do more. It's just different. And, um, and so, yeah, to me, you are definitely an animal activist. So, well, well, yeah. well thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll take that for sure. Thank you. Yeah, no. And, um, and so, you know, talking about animal uh, activism or acting for animal, uh, you know, and writing certainly about them and asking critical questions about what we should and shouldn't do um, for animals. You have written about should the Animal Welfare Act cover rats, mice and birds? And so, you know, the paradoxes and attitudes in animal research. So if you could expand on that, that would be wonderful. Yeah, well, uh, one of the things that I that I discovered quite early when I was, uh, you know, began thinking about these issues 30 years ago is some of the crazy stuff, the absolutely crazy stuff. Uh, let me give uh, uh, the, probably the best example of the crazy stuff is the Nazi animal protection movement. And uh, so it turns out, uh, I was, uh, this was written about in an early brilliant paper by uh, Arnie Arlix and Boria Sachs. So it turns out that Adolf Hitler, uh, when the Nazis uh, came to power in Germany in the 1930s, 
uh, Hitler was a strong animal advocate. Uh, he uh, claimed to be a vegetarian, although some of my, my uh, animal activist pals uh, disagree with this, but he claimed to be a vegetarian. Uh, the, in the late 1930s, the Nazi party enacted the world's most progressive animal uh, rights legislation. It even covered things like the, uh, the way to humanely cook lobsters in Berlin restaurants. Uh, they developed the first uh, regulations for the treatment of animals being used in movies. They banned hunting with dogs. They, they re severely restricted animal research. Uh, and it wasn't just Hitler. Um, uh, Goring one time said, uh, said that if anybody is mean to an animal, it doesn't think that animals deserve rights. I will put them in a concentration camp. And then in 1942, the, uh, the uh, Nazis uh, dictated that Jews were not allowed to have pets. And so they rounded up the dogs and cats owned by Jews and they slaughtered them. However, they slaughtered them in accordance with the Humane Slaughter Act that the Nazis had passed. And so they made sure that the dogs and cats were, were, were humanely euthanized at the same time that the Nazis were putting the owners of these pets into concentration camps, not according to the Humane Slaughter Act. Um, so, we, so, so that's mind-boggling. But, but getting the other thing that dealt with legislation that's equally mind-boggling is the United States Congress, who has uh, enacted uh, uh, the, who originally enacted the, enacted the uh, it became the Animal Welfare Act in the 1960s, but in the 1980s put some teeth into it and dictated that every uh, animal, animal research uh, had to uh, go through, uh, through an animal, animal care and use committee. Um, however, the, the, law, the law also said, according to the law, is that the uh, animal, what an animal is, is uh, any vertebrate animal uh, with the exception of rats, birds, and mice. So, I mean, any, yeah, mammal, rat, with the exception of rats, birds, and mice. And what, what, and what that means is that 99% of the animals uh, used in research in the United States are not covered under the Animal Welfare Act because according to Congress, rats, mice, and birds are not animals. And uh, Scott Plaus and I did a study where we looked at the decision-making processes of these animal care and use committees. Uh, and we found, first of all, that the uh, committees, uh, different university committees made completely different decisions when it came to whether, whether to approve or disapprove on ethical grounds, the use of animals in an experiment. But we also found that the vast majority of scientists on these committees thought that Congress should get rid of that rats, mice, and birds exclusion. But it remains today in the United States. So if you have a research, and, oh, it's, and, and, and it depends on uh, what type of mouse it is. So for example, uh, it covers uh, the, the, the mice in the genus moose, M-U-S, are not covered under the, the, uh, the, animal, uh, the Animal Welfare Act. However, mice in the genus Paramiscus are covered. So you could have, you know, you know, one person in in a lab, you know, studying, uh, you know, sh you know, shocking mice in the genus moose, uh, the typical lab mouse, and not have to go before the animal care committee, uh, while his uh, while his neighbor who's studying uh, field mice, Perimiscus, you know, are are, you know, doing observational studies, 
And uh, they do have to go before the Animal Welfare Committee. So it's absolutely incomprehensible that rats, mice, and birds are not covered under the Animal Welfare Act. And the United States is unique in this regard. So, for example, in UK, uh, these animals are covered. And even some invertebrates are covered in the UK. For example, uh, you know, octopi are covered in the, uh, yes. in the UK. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, to me also the first time I went to work in the United States in, on labo laboratory animal welfare, um, that was also very, very different to what I'm used to here uh, in Europe. Thank you very much, Hal, for sharing that. Uh, it, it is mind-boggling. I actually had no idea about the Nazi animal protection movement in the ways that you have described uh, today. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know that you know there are books on this and uh, we can, uh, of course, uh, continue that conversation if people have questions. You're welcome to email us and uh, yeah, but thank you so much for sharing th those backgrounds. And uh, so, of course, you know, some of your other research and now we're getting closer to your work on, you know, some we love, some we hate in the new uh, edition coming out. Uh, can you talk to us? You talked a little bit about advertising and uh you know, fashion as in billboards, but uh, there are other fashions with regards to sorts of breeds and what is popular. And uh, uh, one of our podcasters, Dr. Um, Ineke van der Weinen, who has also, uh, you know, been uh, writing a lot in the Netherlands about breed popularity and choosing, you know, breeds. Perhaps you can uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we know from wild animals, especially when movies come out, where, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Nemo and the fishes or some, you know, bad-eared foxes, they suddenly become very popular. Can you talk a little bit uh, to the, I guess, issues, but perhaps also opportunities that are there when it comes to different types of pets and popularity and fashion and function? Yeah, sure. Uh, I got interested in this uh, some years ago when I was asked to write a uh, uh, a, a, uh, an, an article for a special issue of a journal uh, on human-animal interactions. And what they wanted me to write about was about the evolution, evolution in our relationship with pets, evolution in our, in our, in our, uh, that we think about animals as well. And I, um, I, I thought, well, it might be interesting to look at cultural evolution as well as uh, biological evolution. And I, and I think like, you know, where, you know, where can I, where can I, find something on cultural evolution about animals. And what I did was I, I, I looked at the American Kennel Club website. And at that time, they uh, published each year the number of new puppies that were registered with the AKC. Uh, and I noticed that, I, that, that uh, for the previous four years, uh, that, that uh, Dalmatians was making this stunning uh, change and we're, we're seen to be crashing in breed popularity. So I contacted the American Kennel Club and I asked them if they could send me information on, uh, uh, the, you know, I knew that they had records back, you know, many decades on, uh, you know, the popularity of dog breeds. I said, could you send me, uh, you know, information on the number of uh, Dalmatian uh, puppies that were have been born, you know, back, you know, back over the last, you know, since 1900 or something like that. And much surprise, surprise, they sent me the data on every breed, every breed of dog. Eventually, they sent me the data back to 1927. 
And so I have a database with uh, 60 million dogs in it. So if you have a purebred dog, or you did up until about 2005, I have your, I have your dog get represented in, in my computer. And I had no idea what to do with this data. So what I did was I just started graphing out the rise and fall of popularity. I found that some breeds sort of had a slow, steady growth in popularity. So for example, Labrador retrievers were that, uh, fell into that category. They went over about a 30-year period uh, slowly but steadily to the number, uh, number one dog in the United States, which they still are. Um, other breeds never became popular. They just sort of, you know, there'd be like 100 new puppy registrations a year. It would go up and it would go down. And there seemed to be, um, you know, no reason they're perfectly good dog. The Norwich Terrier, perfectly good little dog, um, never became popular, never had more than a couple of hundred puppies. And then other breeds would just rise and fall. Like a uh, classic example was Irish Setters. In the 1970s, they took off, crazy took off, and rose a couple of thousand percent in about 10 years, and then crashed in, over the next 10 years right down. And so what we did was we, we uh, I did not know what to do with this stuff. So I, I, I had seen a paper uh, published by a couple of young researchers uh, and they were looked at the rise and fall of baby names, uh, Alex Bentley and Matt Hahn. And they, and they, and they had used uh, millions and millions of baby names in the United States to look at cultural change. And they found they had the same pattern that I found with these dog breeds. So I contacted them and said, hey, guys, I saw your paper on uh, baby names. Would you be interested in uh, applying your mathematical models of cultural evolution to dog breed popularity? And by the way, I have uh, 60 million dogs. And they immediately wrote back and said, yeah, send us the data. And within a couple of weeks, they had sort of figured it out. And what we found out is that uh, when you do the math, that just like baby names, uh, dog breeds become popular rapidly and then fall rapidly. And some become popular and some don't, basically because of random chance not because one breed is better than another breed. And we've now done a dozen studies on this and we found some interesting things. For example, we found out there is a Disney movie effect. It's not so powerful anymore, but it was powerful. So for example, uh, 101 Dalmatians was, was followed by a, a huge surge and then crash in Dalmatians. The same thing with the, uh, with, with the Old English Sheepdogs. Um, we found out, for example, that winning the American Kennel Club has almost no effect on dog breed popularity. But one of the studies that we did involved whether we asked whether or not dogs that make good pets and dogs that are healthier, are they more likely to become popular? And we used uh, surveys, a very large database from the University of Pennsylvania on owners' ratings of their dogs' behaviors, uh, whether it barked a lot, chased a lot, whether it was easily trainable and things like that. And we found that there was no relationship between a breed popularity and between a breed popularity and whether it made a good pet, that is, whether it was easy to live with. Uh, we found, on the other hand, that there was a relationship between genetic diseases and popularity, with more popular breeds having more genetic diseases. And so, what we've argued, what I argued, is in some ways, pets are a form of fashion that French bulldogs have suddenly become the most, the third most popular breed in the United States, not because they're healthier, which in fact, they're not healthier, they're unhealthy, um, but because some people simply do, when, when picking pets, 
what other people seem to be doing. They do it unconsciously. We do it unconsciously. We find the same thing is true of baby names. Uh, uh, the same thing is true of whether or not songs become hip songs become popular. Uh, and so this is an interesting model for just looking at cultural evolution and cultural change generally. Excellent. That is really great. I think, uh, yeah, and, and it's interesting, like, um, you know, when you're talking about uh, how fast also you were able to, uh, you know, they wrote back, obviously, you know, it's very interesting for them to do it and that you were able to do it that fast also, because sometimes these things can take a very long time. And so, and then to get all these different findings with regards to, um, you know, how people also are, you know, making those decisions, but not necessarily being aware of them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, when we're thinking about animals and, you know, what sorts of animals people have as uh, pets, have you done any research in the, with regards to, you know, maybe say bearded dragons or, you know, some, some of the other maybe more unconventional pets and that you find some of those similarities there or was that different or maybe you haven't actually looked in this field? No, the, we, we don't really have, I, I don't really know of data on that. I, I don't have any data on that. Um, we do have uh, material on, uh, for example, preferences for dogs versus cats. And we know that a couple of things are, that are involved in that. Uh, for the most part, dog people and cat people are pretty similar in terms of their personality. The di personality differences tend to be, tend to be pretty small. Um, there's some evidence that dog, peop that dog people, uh, people that have dogs as pets and that people that call themselves dog people tend to be more extroverted people that are cat people tend to be more introverted and more and more and more anxious but the but the biggest factor on whether or not you have a dog or a cat as a pet is where you live there are enormous national differences uh, andrew rowan and i looked at national differences in uh in preferences for for dogs and cats and it's absolutely stunning. You know, there's, there's, uh, I think in Korea, I think we found that you're eight times more likely to be a cat owner than you are a dog owner. And, uh, and for example, dog ownership in the United States, there's about, uh, so I recall, there's about 250 dogs, pet dogs per thousand people in the United States. And for example, in Egypt, there's about 10 dogs per thousand people. Um, so we have these enormous, enormous differences. And this, yeah. this actually does show the impact of culture. It's another way of looking at the impact of culture on our choices of whether or not we're going to live with an animal and what kind of animal we're going to live with. Yes, I'm really fascinated by this also because, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I only had a few um, smaller you know, pets when I was little, but then until, you know, we found out I was allergic, I haven't actually had any other pets, but I'm still very interested uh, in them. And of course, people keeping pets and other companion animals and of course their well-being. So, um, and, you know, I've been, uh, you know, we're actually recording this, this podcast with the video off or sound quality. And I've been uh, staring into the eyes of your beautiful cat, and uh, remembering, of course, your question about, you know, differences be between you and your cat. And um, perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about beyond conspecifics. So it's obviously not a cat, but is uh, Br'er Rabbit uh, our brother? So um, the issue is why uh, do we care 
about the welfare of some animals and not others. Yeah, that was that was the first paper uh, that I was involved in on uh, looking at the psychology of human-animal interactions. This paper uh, Gordon Burkhart and I published in the journal Bioscience back in the 1980s. And uh, Gordon came up with the title, Is Br'er Rabbit Our Brother? And we really asked the question, why do we care about some animals and not other animals? And really, that's, that's the theme of my book. You know, some we love, some we hate, some we eat. And uh, so what we did was we, we, this was, gosh, you know, this is, I can't believe it. It's been almost 40 years ago we published that paper. And it, it, still, it still rings true. And so what we did is we sort of uh, made up a taxonomy of the factors that were related to whether we love animals and whether we whether we hate animals and whether and whether, and whether we eat animals and it's uh, and, and research has shown that there was some truth to what we argue. So, for example, some studies what we argued is that cute animals, you know, animals that we think are cute, uh, you know, we, we tend to put on a higher a higher moral plane. Uh, what makes an animal cute? It's uh, what Conrad Lorenz called baby releasers, Kinder schema. So things like big eyes. Uh, you know, sort of a soft, a soft features, a cranium, the things that look like like human infants. And I would, uh, you know, when I would give public talks, I would I could show pictures of puppies, and inevitably people in the audience would go, "Oh, you know, isn't it cute?" Uh, the example, one of the examples that I use of a uh, of uh, of where we see this is as the giant panda, and so the giant panda is so adorable that the World Wildlife uh, fund use it uses it as, as their as their logo. It's got these you know you know giant appearing eyes because of those because of the because of those dark spots. And it's an endangered species. But the other thing is that, it, it, that in China there's another endangered species. It's even more endangered, which is the giant Chinese. It's actually called the giant Chinese salamander, and it's the largest salamander on Earth. It can grow to be five or six feet long. And it looks like a 150-pound bag of brown slime. And it's got little beady eyes. <laughs> and, and it, you know, for me, as somebody who likes reptiles and amphibians, you know, uh, it's equally as endearing as the panda. Uh, but for most people, it's not. And so, uh, you know, for most people, it's it's it looks it looks like this giant, disgusting, disgust, disgusting blob. But people can care way more about the giant panda, I mean, the panda than they do the, than they do the Chinese salamander. Um, but our attitudes towards animals, animals can, can, can change with culture. So for example, orcas, you know, used to be called killer whales. They're thought to be these horrible killers of the sea. And they've been rehabbed in part for something you mentioned earlier, because, uh, you know, movies like Free Willy, this is an example of where movies and culture affect, affect how we uh, look at animals. Uh, some animals, um, we don't like because they have disgusting habits. That was one of the, the uh, categories that we had in our uh, in our uh, in our Brer Rabbit paper. So, for example, vultures. People think that vultures, you know, eat. You know, they do. They eat dead stuff. So we consider them disgusting. Uh, vampire bats, you know, blood sucking bats, which actually have some very endearing qualities. So, for example, they're one of the few animals where females will actually suckle the young. Uh, of of the offspring that are not that are not theirs, and so uh, what we argued is that, uh, and I really do believe this is true, is that our attitudes towards animals really relate uh, are are more based on our sort of uh, moral emotions, our intuitions, than they are on logic. 
Um, and where we really see this is the inability to get people to eat less meat. And when I say this, people, will, your, your readers will be, will be su surprised to find out that uh, the campaign to get people to uh, eat less meat has actually been a huge failure. That uh, if you include, when Peter Singer wrote Animal Liberation, uh, Americans ate on average about 170 pounds of meat a year. Now, if you include uh, fish and seafood, we eat about 240 pounds of meat a year. And that has not gone down much at all. Uh, when no. Singer wrote Animal Liberation, Americans consumed, uh, consumed about 3 uh, billion animals a year. Now we consume 10 billion animals a year. And what's happening is that as uh, countries like China, people get wealthier, they want to eat more meat. And so this fits along with our, our basic uh, hypothesis in that Brer Rabbit paper. It's not logic that determines our, uh, our behaviors towards animals. It's more our our emotions, it's our guts. Thank you so much for sharing. You know, obviously the paper you mentioned 40 years ago, your book, 2010, if I remember correctly. And then of course, now this new uh, book coming out, the, the second edition of Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, exploring uh, the many relationships and contradictions we engage in with animals each day. And perhaps you can talk about, you know, why did you write uh, the initial book, and also what will be new in this new edition that is coming out uh, somewhere later this year, 2021. Yeah, thanks Thanks for asking that. Uh, how I came to write the, the book, I think, is sort of interesting, and it has to do with the study that uh, Scott Plaus and I did on, uh, on, on animal care committees. And what we found, what Scott and I found, was that uh, animal care committees made completely uh, different decisions. So, for example, a study that would be approved at the University of California at Berkeley would might be disapproved at Johns Hopkins University. Um, so, we we published our, a paper on that, and we published it in the journal Science, which is, you know, arguably one of the world's best best journals. Yeah, and Scott and I thought, you know, this is going to be this is an important paper because of what it's showing is that these ethical decisions. Are, need to be improved, that the decision-making process needs to be improved, and there's ways that we can improve this process. And so we thought this paper was actually going to make a difference. And what we found was that was absolutely not true. That uh, our, our paper, from my point of view, it, it, had, it had no effect. Animal, rats, mice, and birds are still not covered under the Animal Welfare Act. There's been no serious attempt to improve the validity of animal care and use committees. And we worked on that paper for three years. Uh, we spent a, a, a fair amount of money from the National Science Foundation. We published it in the journal Science, and it had no effect. And I, and I, was, I was saying, like, man, you know, I'm tired of doing these studies that don't, they're read by, you know, a handful of people. I'm going to, I've got a sabbatical coming up. I think I'll try and write a book for the public. And I had no idea if I could actually pull it off. I had no idea because I'd written journal, journal articles most of my life. You know, scientists are terrible writers. College teachers are terrible writers for the most part. And the question is, could I switch gears and write a book that would be 
a, a popular book. And by the way, I did I did not write this book for people like you. I did not write this book to be used in colleges. I wrote it for somebody that was getting on an airplane and wanted to be entertained. That's really what I wanted to do. And so my my role models for writing the book were uh, were the writers who's who I really admire is like the detective novelist Elmore Leonard. And uh, songwriters like Merrill Haggard, you know, that's, I wanted to write like Merrill Haggard and Elmore Leonard. And so my goal was to write a book where the goal, because I wasn't writing it as a textbook, the, the goal is to, is to have the reader want to turn the page and read the next page. You know, so the question is, could I do it? And so I, I uh, to do that, you've got to get a, you know, you know, you've got to have a major publisher and stuff like that. And I was very lucky. I had a very good literary agent and, and, and HarperCollins published the book and, 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 and supported it. Um, so so my, my goal was, was really the same goal that I had in teaching my students was to basically confuse people, was uh, to take somebody that really is absolutely convinced that it's okay to eat animals and it's, you know, and, and make them think, well, maybe it's not. Uh, my goal was to uh, take it, have an animal activist and try and convince them that maybe cockfighting is actually preferable to you. If you were going to come back as a chicken in the next world, you'd rather be uh, a, a game rooster, you, you know, to fight in a, uh, in a cockfight in East Tennessee rather than a, a broiler designed to, to be a, become a Big Mac. Um, so my goal was to write a book that was sort to get people to think to think differently, and I think you know to some degree it, uh, at least at least I succeeded. Um, but I've been surprised that the book has been adopted for college classes and things like that. It was not my intent uh, in writing the new edition. Uh, my goal in that was to basically keep the readability of the book, and so it's basically you know many of the, the stories are the same. But it needed updating. What's happened is that the field of human-animal interaction has absolutely taken off in the last 10 years. Uh, I could not write that book today because there's just there's too many papers, too many, too much good research going on on, for example, canine cognition, on uh, the effectiveness of animal-assisted therapy. Uh, when I wrote the book, this was a really minor area which which has exploded. Uh, but but the new in the new edition, uh, there's there's you know there's definitely uh, you know significant changes. I've added about uh, 200 new citations based on new research papers. Uh, I deal more with uh, one of the issues I'm interested in is the humanization of pets, and the paradox that the what I argue is that the more we think of pets as people the less right we have to keep them as pets. So I'm wondering, I'm increasingly wondering whether or not pet keeping itself is possibly inherently unethical. So I sort of make that argument. As you can see, that, that's not going to be widely accepted in some circles. Uh, I've expanded the uh, research on uh, the, the, uh, the coverage of the pet effect. And I basically argue in there that uh, the pet products industry uh, has really gone overboard in pushing this idea that pets are good for human health, that the data really does not uh, support that uh, nearly as much as the pet products industry wants us to believe. Um, there's uh, amazing, one of the areas that's really taken off is canine science. And there's really good researchers in that area. And in and, and the last 10 years, the number of, there's papers that come out on the mind of dogs, really good, highly 
uh, you know, you know, scientifically valid papers on what goes on in a dog's head is coming out coming out you know, nearly daily. Uh, so I deal with issues is like like why do people that are neurotic tend to have dogs that are neurotic? And there's some pretty interesting studies on that. Uh, I cover things, for example, uh, new research on vegetarianism. Uh, uh, why people, uh, why people, why so many vegetarians go back to eating meat? Um, interestingly enough, uh, some new studies showing that, for example, uh, uh, some vegetarians, a substantial number of vegetarians, uh, actually eat animals, uh, eat animals every day while calling themselves vegetarians, and most of them do not think that fish are made out of meat. If you ask them, do you think fish are made out of meat? <laughs> yes. they, they, they say they say no. Uh, yeah. And I also have I have new information on uh, the issue of animal research in the age of COVID, and I've talked to to uh, you know philosophers on that, including uh, for example Peter Singer, who has a surprising response to the question: uh, you know, is it okay to use animal to use mice and increasingly monkeys to develop new vaccines uh, that can save millions and millions of people from the pandemic? So that's the sort of things. It's basically an update. I kept, I tried to keep the readability. I tried to keep the the stories of animal people, which is the central part of the book. And uh, I'm hoping I'm hoping I'll have another uh, you know ten year run of of uh, you know entertaining people and getting them to think differently. I'm sure it will be. I already look forward to reading it. And uh, yeah, I almost sometimes wanted to go bleep, 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 because of course <laughs> we we are so going to, uh, you know, look forward to it. And, uh, you know, uh, people will just have to read the book and uh, perhaps actually read both of them. So, you know, if you can get that, you talked about the importance of not only cultural, but also historical perspectives and looking back in time and understanding things. So, I think, you know, reading both of them uh, is probably a very good idea to see what did you write, you know, 11 years ago and, and what did you what did you write now? So, uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah, let, uh, let maybe there's going to even be an, a third edition in another 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me also mention the, the blog that I write for Psychology Today magazine. Um, I've, I found that uh, I never thought of myself as a as a blogger. Uh, but I but I started writing it when the book came out, and uh, I've written about, gosh, about 150 blog posts now dealing with uh, a lot of it deals with you know recent research, new research, new new controversies, and unlike unlike the book, the blog is the blog is free. So if you're interested in reading about you know why humans are the only animals to keep pets, or uh, are therapy dogs really good for uh, you know kids and a you know kids with cancer. Or uh, you know uh, why why kids are more likely to say they will save a dog over a human than uh, grown-ups are. Uh, take a look at the Psychology Today blog. All you have to do is Google "animals and us" and it'll pop up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that because yes, as you mentioned, you know uh, accessibility is really important. So there's different options, books, libraries. And, and of course your blog with lots of information. And uh, I really, really enjoyed, I have another hundred questions, uh, but maybe another podcast once your book is out and I've been able to read it, 
I would love to have you back for another podcast. But thanks so much for sharing, you know, your long, you know, decades and decades of work and, you know, really raising also through a popular uh, writing and a popular voice, um, all kinds of actions for animals, if you like. So thanks so much, Hal, for coming onto the podcast today. Well, Sabrina, thanks for, thanks, for, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a PAUSE member today.